Hey, good morning, New Hope. It's great to see you. My name is John. I'm one of the the pastors here. Welcome to everyone uh, gathered with us on Facebook Live this morning in your homes or wherever you're watching from. As I'm sure you're learning with Facebook Live, you can be interactive, and I'd love to encourage you to be interactive with one another and interactive with the message as we go through it uh, this morning. But thanks for taking time to gather with us as a community. We're we're in this together. I'm going to start with our scripture reading. It's uh, from Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 48. If you want to get out your devices, get out your Bibles, and read along with us, that would be great. It was about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breast, and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Many years ago, I was preaching about my fear of heights and things I've done throughout my life to overcome them, like like bungee jumping and rappelling. And afterwards, a gentleman approached me. I didn't know him and said, I want to give you a gift to help you continue to overcome your fear of heights. I want to pay for you to go skydiving. The minute he said that, it didn't sound like a gift. My, I, I got nauseous, what he said, because I really am fearful of heights, and I knew as well that I had to accept his gift. It was a very generous gift, hundreds of dollars. It was kind of him, and I want to face my fears. So we scheduled it. He was with a skydiving club. I, I researched them. They were top-notch, highly professional, and they, had, most importantly, had never had any deaths. So I spent the month researching skydiving, what's the percentages of people who die, all that kind of crazy stuff. And I found it was a really, really safe hobby, but I was convinced I was going to be the exception. I kept on having these mental images of me hurtling down through the air with my chute not open to this gruesome death. You don't want to live in my head. That day, it was in May, it was beautiful Wisconsin spring day, bright blue skies, hardly any wind, perfect for skydiving. Uh, my wife, Corey, was with me. We drove up to the skydiving club, little airport, checked in. I was going to go tandem diving, which means you're attached to someone who's semi-professional. They've done it a bunch, and they do all the work, which was great. I'd watched about a 30-minute video, and then I met my tandem partner. His name was Steve. Seemed like a great guy, mid-40s, been on hundreds of jumps. I asked for his resume when I met him, and he patted me on the back and said, it's going to be okay, buddy. We're going to have fun. I was skeptical of that. We went out kind of in the on-deck circle. The group in front of us was up in the air, jumping out of the plane. People were clapping, and then all of a sudden you hear this gasp, and someone's chute had not opened. Luckily, five seconds later, the secondary chute opened, and everybody clapped. And I heard a lady beside me say, that never happens. And I thought to myself, I'm going to die today. And my wife looked at me and said, it's going to be okay, honey. So our group went up. There's about 12 of us. Steve and I were in the back. We were going to go last. Everybody else was part of the club. And they were so happy and excited to go skydiving. I was literally sick to my stomach, kind of rocking in the back. One of them said, I can't believe we jump out of perfectly good airplanes. And I'm like, exactly. You're crazy. We got up to 16,000 feet. The door opens. People go careening out, yelping for joy one after another. And then it's Steve and I's turn. He makes sure we're attached and we waddle up together to the doorway. And then I think, I don't even know this guy. I've never met him until 90 minutes ago. Is he a good dude? Did he have breakfast? Did he sleep well last night? Does he want to live today? I hope so. 
and we jumped. And I put my life literally in his hands. And it was amazing, and I'll never, ever do it again. We're in the last week of our series called Last Words. We're looking at the last words of Jesus on the cross. It's guided us through the season of Lent, which, which ends on Thursday. Lent is a 40-day period preparing our hearts to celebrate Easter. And I think I can speak on behalf of everyone out there. It is a tough time. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of sorrow. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of fear. We see the economy and people losing jobs, people getting sick. We see death, and it presses in on our hearts. At least it does for me. But I was thinking this series is, is, is kind of perfect for this season because this was Jesus' darkest moments, his hardest points in his life. And we get to watch him as those who follow Jesus and ask, what did he say? How did he respond? How did he live in his darkest moments? And we can glean from that. We can learn from that. And I think that we'll learn a lot today from his, his final words on how to navigate really, really difficult and hard seasons. We've looked at him saying words of grace and words of mercy and words of compassion. He cried out when he was lonely. He cried out when he was thirsty. Last week, he proclaimed victory in the very midst of death that gives all of us who follow him and link our hopes to Jesus greater hope in the midst of a hopeless season right now. Uh, Today, we're going to see Jesus in his last words proclaim a defiant cry of faith. Jesus is going to put his life in the Father's hands. We've been bouncing around the four eyewitness accounts or gospels during the season. No one gospel has all four sayings. We're back in Luke's gospel today, and that was our first two weeks in this series, the first two sets of words that Jesus says. As a little review, Luke tells us that Jesus was flogged. Uh, He was close to death already, and he had to carry the the crossbeam, the patibulum, up the Via Dolorosa, up this long winding here to Golgotha or Calvary. Uh, Once he barely made it, he needed help. Then he was laid on his back. He was attached to the crossbeam. He was stripped of his clothes. And then he was hoisted up on on a vertical beam that was already in place between two criminals. Uh, He's being mocked and jeered by the Roman soldiers and the crowd and the religious leaders. And those are his first words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then his second set of words are to the criminal who realizes who he is, realizes who Jesus is, and looks to Jesus for life. And Jesus says, today, because of your faith, you'll be with me in paradise. These words, the first three sets of words, happen between 9 and 12. And then we're told, Luke tells us we have three hours of darkness where Jesus is silent. He doesn't say anything. And then over the next three hours, Jesus says his final four sets of words. When we've looked at three of those in the last three weeks, and now we come to the, the very last of Jesus' last words. And they're in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke is the only one who tells us exactly what Jesus' last words are. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus cried out with a loud last cry, but they don't tell us what that last cry was. Luke tells us in his last words, as we, as we just read, our, our Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, at home, you can play along here. You can just give the answer out if you're alone or with your group. You can write it on, on Facebook. But if you've been listening in the series, and if you come to New Hope regularly, you probably know this. Where do you think Jesus was quoting scripture here? Where do you think he was quoting from? Go. Just, you can just shout it out. Where do you think Jesus quoted? It was his prayer book. It's our prayer book. Jesus was quoting from the Psalms. If you said that or you put it on Facebook Live, way to go. You're listening. If you got it wrong, it's okay. The psalm were Jesus' prayer books. He, he knew them like the back of his hand. He had memorized all of them. 
He's already quoted from them. We looked at that a few weeks ago. When my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from Psalm 22? Jesus often prayed from the Psalms. The Psalms were just woven so deeply into Jesus' life, it was hard to differentiate between his words and the words of the psalmist. For those of us who follow Jesus and try our best to pray, I struggle to pray. I'm sure many of you do. Praying the Psalms is, is a marvelous rhythm. I do my best to engage with the Psalms on a daily basis. I invite you to do the same. Let me read to you from what he was quoting from. It's Psalm 31, verses 1 through 3. This is a Psalm of, of David. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Jesus is quoting from that very last part of that in verse 5, but he's incorporating all of it as, as he brings the Psalms, that Psalm 31 into play. What's repeated there, if, if, if you're just listening, you, you see refuge and you see uh, rock of refuge, you see strong fortress, you see rock and fortress again. David is repeating again and again these ideas of solidity and protection, hiding out from harm. Years ago when I was a youth pastor, I made a terrible decision to take a bunch of middle schoolers paintballing. It, it actually went okay for a few hours. And then we got to the end of the day and I, I made the announcements. There was two teams, maybe 30 kids. I was like, hey, we got five minutes. You need to, whatever you're going to do with the rest of your ammo, you need to kind of empty it out. And that was the wrong thing to say because they got this huge grin on their face. They looked at each other and they all turned their guns on me. <laughs> I turned tail and they just lit me up. I had the welts later to prove it. It was, it was terrible. It was really painful. Behind me, about 15 feet behind me, was this man-made bunker as part of the complex. And I just ran for it. I remember diving headforced into it. And the minute I got in there, you could hear all the ammo on the, on the fortress, but no longer was I getting lit up. Whenever I think of that idea of refuge, I think about that. They were middle schoolers, so they used all their ammo, and guess who still had some ammo left? That's another story. This is kind of what David is talking about. David is, is in this psalm. He's suffering, and he's surrounded by his enemies. He's under attack, and he's crying out to God in faith. He's saying, God... I want to put my life in your hands. Jesus is stepping into that psalm and reliving it. Jesus is suffering. He's the righteous sufferer. Jesus is surrounded by his enemies. Jesus is under attack and Jesus cries out in faith to God using the words of King David, using our Psalter, using this prayer. And Jesus puts his life in God's hands. That first phrase that Jesus says, Father, we know throughout the Gospels, Jesus loved to call God Abba, which is an Aramaic word that was really affectionate and tender. In our vernacular, it means daddy. It's kind of what he liked to refer to, to God as. Now, God doesn't have gender. Uh, God's referred to as a mother at places in Scripture. The idea is that God is this loving, affectionate, caring parent, and not everybody has that privilege, but I think we can... We can dream of that, even if we've never experienced it. That's who God is, and Jesus is calling on that. When my girls uh, were, were little, and you know their necks had solidified, and their bodies got strong enough, and they're you know one, two, three, I would take them. One of my favorite activities is take them, hold them up like this, and then just toss them up in the air and catch them. Toss them up in the air and catch them. 
man, I can still picture their little faces of joy. We'd just be locking eyes. They would giggle. I would giggle. They would giggle. Sometimes they'd burp up on me. It was awesome. They had this incredible trust in their father. I was their daddy. They were these little kids. I was their big, strong daddy to them. I would never drop them, except that one time. No, I'm just kidding. Childlike faith. Jesus is evidencing just with this term from the cross, this childlike faith in God. And we have this misnomer that as we grow older, we don't need to have childlike faith anymore. Jesus actually says the opposite. He says, to, to enter the kingdom, we must become like little children. Jesus lived that way. He evidenced that as a little boy, but he evidenced that as a grown man from the cross. As he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. We don't, we, don't, we don't grow out of having childlike faith. We're meant to grow into it. And Jesus in this final display is calling all of us who follow him into this childlike faith. When we're going through hard times, and this is one of them, church people, Christ followers often say, uh, people are like, well, what, what do we do? And they, their response is, well, you just got to have faith. Now, I think that's theologically accurate. I don't know that it's very helpful because what does that mean? Jesus shows us what that means here. Watching him on the cross, understanding what it's like to have faith and to live by faith will help us in this season. For one, I think Jesus defines what faith is, putting our lives into God's hands. In Jesus' words, committing his spirit into God's hands. That is faith, but what does that look like? What does it look like for you and for me in this really difficult season to follow Jesus, to have childlike faith in the Father, to put our lives in God's hand. I think Jesus shows us. So let's, let's break that down a little bit. I want to get very practical here to help us move beyond the, 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 the churchisms of just got to have faith. What does that mean? One, it means that we, we expect God to keep his word. We expect God to keep his word. One of the biggest misconceptions about faith is that faith is blind. And when people say that, they mean faith is opposite of reason, and that's absolutely not true. Faith is built on reason. One of my favorite definitions of faith is, faith is reason gone courageous. When I went skydiving, I was showing faith, absolutely, but it was not blind faith. Trust me, I had done my research. Steve had gone jumping hundreds of times. There's all kinds of certifications by the state. They had never had any deaths. The pilot was highly certified. All the gear was triple checked. Yes, it was a step of faith, but it was a step of reasonable faith. Jesus, when, when he was putting his life in God's hands on the cross, this wasn't some kind of Hail Mary scenario, some kind of last-ditch effort of like he's dying, it's this horrible story, but let me just pull out one of those prayers from the Psalms that I used to pray and just see what happens. That is not what is occurring. Jesus is crying out in defiant faith from the cross. Yes, it seems like a hopeless situation. What kind of king hangs on a cross? But he has incredible faith in God. And what is he trusting God in? He's trusting God to keep his word. Who did he learn this from? He learned this from the woman right in front of him, his mother who we met a few weeks ago. When Mary got the news from Gabriel that she was carrying God in her belly, her line was, let it be according to your word. Who do you think taught Jesus to take God at his word? That woman did. And he was living it out on the cross. What did Jesus expect God to do in keeping his word? Jesus fully expected God 
to raise him from the dead. Jesus, in his teaching, numerous times in the Gospels, we see him proclaim the belief that he, the Messiah, was gonna rise again. There was his full expectation. Jesus knew the scriptures. He knew Isaiah 53, talking about the Messiah, that the Messiah, after suffering, this is the prophet Isaiah, would see the light of life and be satisfied. Peter and Paul, when they're preaching in Acts, totally different places, totally different scenarios, they both invoke Psalm 16 as it relates to Jesus. And Psalm 16 is a promise that God would not abandon Jesus to the grave. Jesus knew Psalm 16. And Jesus, when he cried out to God in faith, he fully believed that God was going to raise him from the dead. My kids, uh, I'll make promises as all parents do, and numerous times they'll come to me like, Daddy, you promised. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying from the cross. Dad, you promised. You better make good on your promise. This reminds me of a scene from uh, Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, probably shows my age, but it's a perfect time in quarantine to catch up on those old movies. So uh, there's a scene, and if you've never seen Indiana Jones, start watching them. I think they're amazing. I think they hold up. Well, you can tell me, but I think they're awesome. But there's a scene from Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. It's my, it's my favorite one. I think there's four of them. I think this was the third, but it's my favorite, favorite one and kind of my favorite scene. Indy's dad is, is dying. Sean Connery plays his dad. And Indy's trying to find the Holy Grail, which was the cup that Jesus supposedly drank from at the Last Supper that Indy believed had healing powers. So a lot of you, are, you can find this scene easily on YouTube. I went and found it. Don't look now. Or I guess if you want to look, look and follow along as I tell the story. But he's going down through this kind of tunnel and his dad's dying and he's crying out and he's trying to get the cup to save his dad. And he's got this like book and it's this ancient book that's telling him all the things that are about to kill him in the tunnel. So he's figuring that right before a blade comes and almost chops his head off and he jumps through. And he gets all the way to the end to kind of the last challenge and there's this huge chasm and it's just vast and there's no way he can jump. And his dad's yelling, his dad knows the book, his dad knows where he's at in the tunnel. And they're seeing the camera pans into his dad. He's like, boy, you just got to believe. And that's what he's saying. And then Indy's reading and he's like, I just got to believe. And so you maybe have seen the scene. He steps forward, right? And then this path emerges. Now that's a leap of faith. But was it blind faith? No, it was not blind faith. Every step of the way, the words in this book had been true and saved his life. So yes, it was faith, but it was reasonable faith. And he could trust the word. This is what Jesus is doing when he steps onto the cross and he gives his life freely. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's, he's trusting God to keep his word. We talked about in Psalm 22 when, when you invoke a portion of a psalm, you invoke all of it. Listen later in Psalm 31. Jesus is certainly thinking about this when he quotes from Psalm 31. Psalm 31 says this. This is King David. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, Lord, for I have cried out to you. What does it look like in dark, hard, challenging times, seasons like we're in, to live by faith? What does it look like to put our lives in God's hands? It means we trust God to keep his word. He has been faithful and true. He's got an incredible track record. He will not abandon us to the grave. Secondly, what does it look like to live by faith, to put our lives in God's hand? It means entrusting ourselves to one who is worthy of trust. 
Trusting ourselves to the one who is worthy of trust. My favorite commercials on right now are a series of commercials by AT&T Wireless. And, and their tagline for them are, uh, just okay is not okay. And there's one with a tattoo artist, and the guy's getting his tattoo, and the tattoo artist is like, is this your first tattoo? And he's like, yeah. And the tattoo artist is like, it's going to be okay. And the guy's like, just okay? And he's like, I'm one of the tattoo artists in town. <laughs> the guy's like, I hope you mean one of the, the best. And then he begins, and the guy getting the tattoo goes, aren't you supposed to draw it out before you begin? And the tattoo artist says, stay in your lane, bro. And then the, the tagline, just okay is not okay, which is true for a tattoo artist. You don't want a just okay tattoo artist. And there's one with a doctor. Uh, there's a patient waiting to get surgery. Dr. Francis comes in, and, 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 uh, and the patient, before Dr. Francis comes in, she's like, you know Dr. Francis? And the nurse is like, yeah, he's okay. And then Dr. Francis, is, he comes in, he's like, hey, guess who just got reinstated? And he's like, not really. And then he turns to the patient and he's like, are you nervous? I am too. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. And then just okay is not okay. And that's true for a surgeon. Just okay is not okay. As an aside, uh, thankfully, I've never had a doctor like that ever. And I just want to give a shout out to, to Everyone out there, all the medical professionals, you know who you are. Many of you know or are friends with medical professionals. Thank you so, so, so much. We, we are with you. Uh, thank you for your courage. Thank you for your sacrifice. We are praying for you literally as you put your lives on the line for us. And right now on Facebook Live, just give them the, the heart emoji or the clapping hands or throw out prayers to them. Let them know they're loved. And please, followers of Jesus, New Hope, let's be faithful to pray for our medical professionals. But just okay is not okay in, in, in most things in life, certainly when we choose to put our lives in someone's hands. We shouldn't settle. That's really essentially what idolatry is, which is, if we read Scripture, one of the huge problems with, with the human race and the human heart. Idolatry is when we look to things or people to do things only God can do. It's making good things the ultimate things. And idolatry, frankly, doesn't work. And I think in this season of suffering and heartache, it often reveals what we're trusting. And it reveals our idols. It reveals the things we're looking to as God replacements. And frankly, we're only a few weeks into this, the idols aren't standing up too well. The God replacements aren't standing up too well. When we look to things other than God, when we put our life in the hands of people or possessions or pursuits or professions or whatever our idols may be, we will eventually be put to shame because they cannot sustain us. But the hope of Scripture, the hope of Jesus on the cross is if we put our lives in God's hands, we will never be put to shame. I was walking our dogs the other day. I walk them a lot. I've been walking about a ton as, as we've been at, at home. And it was a day that I was, I was particularly sad and I was feeling anxiety and just sorrow in my heart about a, a lot of things going on. And I look up in the sky and across this little valley near our house was this immense golden eagle. And it was just soaring. And I just stood there and I got a little teary-eyed, frankly, just watching it, longing for the freedom and the beauty that that eagle was exhibiting in my own heart and life. And it made me think of, of, a, of one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Isaiah 40. And I want to read a little bit of it to you 
And I want you to think, followers of Jesus, when we make the choice to put our lives in God's hands, this is the God we're trusting, not an idol that will fail us and let us down and cause us shame, but this God. Isaiah writes, do you, do you not know? <laughs> Haven't you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But here it is, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. What does it look like to live by faith like Jesus did, to put our lives in God's hands? We trust God to keep his word. We also entrust ourselves to the one who is worthy of trust. And finally, what does it look like to live by faith, to put our lives in God's hands? It means we, we must jump out of the plane. When we were on the door, on the precipice to, to jumping into 16,000 feet of open air, I was pretty frantic. I had envisioned it so many times, and it didn't help. I was really freaking out. And we did have this small window to jump, or we would miss our opportunity. So after probably 10 seconds of sitting there, Steve leads into me, and the engine's loud, and the air's loud, and he shouts in my ear, he's like, you have to jump! <laughs> and I was just like, okay. And, and I did. But it wasn't faith until I jumped. St sitting on the edge wasn't faith. That was theory, maybe aspiration. It wasn't faith. Because true faith, biblical faith, the type of faith Jesus exhibited is jumping out of the plane. It has action attached to it. Scripture tells us that over and over and over again. I just like to say it like this. Faith works. Faith that doesn't work, that doesn't have action, is not faith. James, the brother of Jesus, says it very succinctly. He says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's not faith. To have faith, to live by faith, to put our lives in God's hands, means we got to jump out of the plane. I want to give a simple illustration. You've probably seen this before in, in, in some way, shape, or form. But this table uh, was built, a uh, podium was built by a friend here at New Hope who's a great craftsman. I know him. I trust him. It's really solid. I don't know how well you can see it. It's got metal legs and it's solid. It's a sturdy podium. And I've been preaching behind it for years. And one of my deals when I preach, my wife yells at me about it sometimes I lean like this, I'll rock sometime. I mean, I've tested it a lot over the years. I trust it. I trust that this podium will hold me. Now, I've never gotten up on it, but I trust that it'll hold me. But this, me looking at it, talking about how I trust that it'll hold me, even doing this, this is not faith. It's theory. It's aspiration. It's not faith. And we have this misnomer in Christianity that, that faith lives in our heart, but not in our body. And that's not true. We, for faith to be faith, yes, it lives in our heart, but it has to be embodied to come to life. This is faith. Oh, I'm putting all my weight on it. Faith was not me sitting there testing it, leaning on it, talking about how sturdy a table it is. This right here is faith. I'm glad that didn't go bad. The table busted. That would be a good illustration. Portland pastor crush his table. It would go viral. 
simple illustration, incredibly important when we're talking about faith. Jesus, last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He changes them a little bit. When, when David says them in Psalm 31, they're future tense. So David's talking about some future time that he's going to entrust himself to God. Jesus, when he says them, it's present tense. Jesus is like, right now, Father, right now, in this moment, as I give my life for the sins of the world, I commit my spirit into your hands. I'm doing it. Jesus embodied faith. It wasn't just a mental thing that lived in his heart. It led to action. It led to him being on the cross. The word commit into your hands, I commit my spirit. This Greek word is the same Greek word used if you were to set a table. And let's say you had guests over and you're setting out plates and you're setting out utensils in front of your guests for them to use. That's the word. And it's a beautiful connection point for what faith is. For us to have faith, for us to to put our lives in God's hands means we offer literally our bodies to God. And this makes total sense. When we kind of curl up in God's hands and we totally trust God with our lives, it, it unlocks us. It gives us this freedom. As Paul said, God, our bodies are living sacrifices to you. Or the prophet Isaiah, his great prayer, God, here we are. Use us. Something happens when we have faith in God that we say, no longer am I going to kind of curl in on myself and keep everything to myself. This is when we trust ourselves, we trust in our idols that will put us to shame. But when we begin to trust in the living, powerful, almighty God who will not abandon us to the grave, we're like, here we go. Here we go. Use me, God, for whatever you want. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for me in this season? Well, one of them is staying home. People are Get it, get it again. Scientists, government officials, stay home, save lives. I believe that. I hope you're being faithful to that as much as you can. That's the way we can use our bodies right now to help one another. But there's ways we can stay home with the people that, if you have people with you that you're quarantining with, how are you loving on them? How are you releasing your body for, for, for good and for service, for God and for others right where you're at? Maybe it's a phone call or a text or a video chat to a friend or an old, just old school snail mail. You write somebody a letter. Maybe it's neighbors that you're passing from a distance and how you interact with them and how you love them. Maybe it's how you get involved here with the needs that are coming to, the, to our doorstep here at New Hope. And last week we talked about you can go to our website. It's on the homepage and just click on, I want to help. And there's ways you can help financially and there's ways you can help deliver food and there's ways you can help with unhoused. And we'll continue to get more and more opportunities. But faith is vitally connected to that. Make no mistake, living by faith, putting our lives in God's hands means a different kind of living. Or it's simply not faith. Years ago, I worked uh, with, with students who were developmentally disabled at a special school. And for a couple of years, I worked with, with one individual. His name was Brian. And Brian was 16, 17 at the time that I was working with him. And one summer, we got the opportunity to take the school to a really large amusement park in Virginia, which is where I lived and worked at the time. Brian had never even really been to anything like that. So I was super excited to, to show him all the rides. And we took it slow for a while and did the twirly rides and, and get him accustomed to what it's like to do actual rides. And he was doing well on all of them. And then I saw a sign, there's this brand new roller coaster that was open. I was like, hey, Brian, do you want to go on a roller coaster? He's like, what's a roller coaster? I'm like, oh, it's great. You'll love it. 
So we got in line, there was a long line, we waited, and we finally got on this particular roller coaster. It went from zero to 60 in five seconds, some kind of like rocket propulsion at the beginning. <laughs> it, was, it was a crazy fun roller coaster. But for somebody who had never been in retrospect, it had to just be horrifying and frightening. So I'm super excited, frankly, not really thinking about Brian much, which wasn't very kind. And we get all strapped in and, and just, boom, we're off. And then we're just like up and down and all around and everybody's screaming. And those of you who've been on roller coasters know the deal. Well, at one point, I look over at, at Brian and he is ashen white. He looks like he's about to throw up. He looks absolutely horrified. I was like, hey, buddy, how you doing? I'll never forget what he said. He says, are we having fun yet? And it was his way of saying he'd never been. He, he doesn't know what's going on. He's looking to me. He's trusting me. He's put his life in my hands. He's like, is this okay? It doesn't feel okay to my body. You look like you're having fun. Everybody else does. I'm not having fun. What he was asking was, is it okay? Is this safe? And I've thought about that over these last couple of weeks. I've felt what I think probably Brian was feeling. You probably mirror this emotions, I would guess, over these last couple of weeks. It's felt like a roller coaster, some, sometimes an out of control roller coaster. And I'm thinking, my God, are, are we okay? Is this okay? And part of me is like, no, and where are you? And all those big questions that we're all wrestling with. And they're warranted, and please ask them, and please pray them, and lament with gusto. But it admits the chaos, it admits the suffering, it admits our enemies amidst even death itself, we can turn our eyes to Jesus, the one we follow, and we can mirror what he did. And he chose by faith to put his life in God's hands. That in and of itself is a frightening endeavor, at least for me, because I'm a control freak, and to put my life in anyone else's hands scares me, even if it's God. And, and I'll be honest, it, it's taken me decades. It took me decades before I could get to the place like Jesus prayed in the garden, God, not my will, but your will be done. And I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that, but that's, that's, that's the truth. In these last couple of years, God's begun to unlock that in me. I still pray it with fear and trembling, but I'm utterly convinced it's the only way to live. And I'm, I'm utterly convinced it's the better way to live. For when we put our lives in God's hands, it opens up this pathway that I taste sometimes, but not all the time, but it's there. When we have faith and we put our lives in God's hands, it leads from restlessness, which I feel often, to a place of rest. We see this in the story of Jesus, the storm. If you remember that story, and the disciples are freaking out. And there's this massive storm threatening their very lives, and Jesus is asleep. And they wake him up and you remember what he says? You can participate at home. Do you remember what he says? Oh, you of little faith. And then he calms the storm. They didn't know who they were with. <laughs> the writer of Hebrews says, we who believe, we who have faith, we who put our lives in God's hands, we enter rest. I've been so grateful for artists in this season. I'm reading a lot of poetry watching movies, reading novels and books. I think we, we always need our artists. We need them more than ever right now. Please throw pots, paint pictures, write stories, write music. We need your voices. 
One of my artist friends, Scott Erickson, he was at New Hope a few years ago. He creates what he calls modern icons, and icons are pictures or ways to see truth pictorially, kind of in a different way. They open up a new insight. And this is one of my, my favorite icons that Scott has created, and it's, it's hands, and Scott meant them to be God's hands, and then holding the boat, which is meant to be our lives. I have this prominently displayed in my home office, right where I can see it often as I'm writing sermons and I'm making phone calls to remind me of the truth of Jesus' prayer here today. I think it's that vital. I was texting with Scott this week, and I was like, hey, what was in your heart when you created this? And this text back to me, he said, it's the image of what it looks like to live and work within the context of trust. I thought that was beautifully put. Scott went back later, and I think you'll see it in the, in the image that we're displaying, but he wrote the word rest around it. He amended it later because he saw that this, this type of life, living by faith, putting our lives in God's hands, leads to rest. One of the author poets that I love more than any other is Wendell Berry. If you've never read Wendell Berry, please do. I'm making my way through his novels. He's written tons of poetry. He's a follower of Jesus, modern-day prophet. I came upon a line that Wendell Berry wrote in some of his poetry this week that frankly staggered me, and I've been ruminating on it and reflecting on it all week, and it's this. He says, I rested in a keeping not my own. Isn't that beautiful? I I rested in a keeping not my own. That it's God's to keep. And he said, once we realize that who God is, we just climb in on in there with our little boats, and we can rest, but the rest is... We don't have to maintain it, that it's a keeping, not our own. It's not surprising that Psalm 31 was used in Judaism as a bedtime prayer. It's certainly Jesus' words from the cross and and Psalm 31 shaped a prayer I learned as a kid, and perhaps you, you prayed, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, to keep. It was one of the earliest prayers my parents taught me. This prayer, putting our lives in God's hands, though, is not just a bedtime prayer. It's a great bedtime prayer. But it's a daytime prayer. It's it's a prayer as followers of Jesus that, especially in seasons like this, we need to be praying in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. It's a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, day-by-day prayer. So, Nuha, what's it going to be? As we navigate this crazy season, are we going to continue to to sink our faith and our hope and our idols that are crumbling all around us? Are we going to trust ourselves to maintain our lives? Are we going to be like Jesus? Are we going to choose in our darkest moments and even in our best moments to put our lives in God's hands for we will never, ever be put to shame. He will not abandon us to the grave. Let's make Jesus' last prayer and his last words, our prayer. And let's not only pray it, let's live it. Let me close this in prayer. And and wherever you're at right now, just put down what you have on your lap. If you've got any distractions, just kind of clear those out. And I want us to to do this. Go ahead and take your hands like this, just kind of like Scott's image, just to remind us of what it looks like for God to hold us. And just go ahead, all of you, do it. Some of you aren't, aren't doing it, so go ahead, do it. I know it's awkward, but wherever you're at, just put your hands like this and just go ahead and close your eyes and let me, let me pray for us. Abba, we, we choose today in the midst of, uh, of the chaos and the fear and 
the loneliness, the heartache, the sorrow, the sense of death all around us. We, we choose, Abba, to put our lives in your hands. We, we trust you to keep your word. We trust you because you are worthy of trust. Here we are, Abba. Use us. Here we are, Abba. Use us. And go ahead and just, if you will, just hold out your hands like this just to illustrate that you're here. We're doing this with fear and trembling, but we're here as followers of Jesus, the body of Christ in such a time as this. Abba, as we put our lives in your hands, here we are. Use us. For we rest in a keeping that's not our own, it's yours. We rest, Abba, Father in your keeping. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.